This morning we find ourselves wrapping up our study of 1 Peter. What many of you thought would be a two or three week study has found its way to be a six and a half month study or so. And so you're welcome. Um, and so what we, what we have this morning is this odd kind of collection of verses here at the end of the book. But amazingly, what God is calling us to do in some sense on the basis of what's written here in 1 Peter is to journey back through this text together. And so that's what we're going to do. So what I want to do is read verse 12, kind of set up and explain some things, and then we're going to journey back through this, and I think you'll see why. Peter writes to this group, and look what he says here in, in verse 12 of chapter 5. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And then summarily, he gives them this command, stand firm in it. And so the question that should be rolling in your mind, maybe it's what's for lunch, where we're going to go, uh, is it, how long is he going to go, it, those could be the questions very much in your minds this morning. But the question that should be in your mind is, what does this refer to? What exactly am I supposed to stand firm in? What exactly are you supposed to stand firm in? So this is the very end of the book. And what he's telling you is everything I've said before, you have to know it. You have to enact it. It has to permeate every essence of who you are. This needs to be where you find who you are, and that, that impacts how you act in community. And so what we're going to do, in essence, to try and uncover that, to dig through that, is seek to answer a few questions this morning as we journey through the book of 1 Peter. And the first question we're going to seek to answer is the question of, of who are we? But really, as a Christian, when you begin to answer the question of who you are, it's so, so integrally woven with whose you are that you can't accurately separate the two. So we're going to be looking at really kind of who and whose we are and, and how this came to be. And then the, the big question I get asked all the time is, is, what then should I do on the basis of this? So what are we to do? We know who we are. We know whose we are. What are we to do? And and how in the world are we supposed to accomplish it? Because I really think, in some sense, if we understand well the book of 1 Peter, then we understand well who we are meant to be here and now in the 21st century. Amen? You guys got to do better than that. I'm going to be up here for 30 or 45 minutes. If I'm the only one putting any energy into this, it's going to be rough. Amen? Yeah, you amen that, I bet. Peter opens up in 1-1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's walk through this a little bit. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Everybody say, elect exiles. He writes to them, he says, you guys are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he lists these five cities. And they're Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, historically speaking, people, you know, commentators would write and trying to figure out what exactly Peter's getting at. Historically, the line of thought went that these guys have all been dispersed from one area, one city, one location, and they have found themselves in these disparate cities. They found themselves in one of these five cities. Now, as scholarship's been updated, we've had opportunity to look at other writings and other works. What we found is that Peter is absolutely not addressing what's happened to them. He's absolutely not addressing the cities they find themselves in. He's addressing something so much more timeless. And in fact, referring to them as exiles, he's queuing into something that should be resonating in our own hearts. Peter's queuing in on something. What he writes to them and effectively says is, this is not your home. This is not your home. 
is they began to appropriate for themselves this Christian identity, what it meant to be identified with Christ and not what it means to be identified as somebody from Pontus, somebody from Galatia, a Roman citizen. They begin to recognize this tension in relationship. They begin to recognize that they're not engaged in the same practices that their brother, that their sister, that their wife, their mother, their father, their neighbor are. Their heart beats for something different. And so, in essence, what's engendered in them, what's created in them, is this sense of longing and of homesickness, and, 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 and it's uncomfortable. They don't really know, they don't really understand. It's what Peter writes to them. He says, it's okay. You don't engage in the same practices as of those in your neighborhood. You don't sacrifice to idols. You're not doing the same things everybody around you does. It's just kind of humdrum. There's an oddness to you. And it's okay. In communicating to them that they are exiles, that they are spending time in exile as resident aliens here on planet Earth, he's communicating to them, one, their primary loyalty does not lie in their citizenry of Rome, or for us, our citizenry to the United States, but our ultimate allegiance and loyalty resides in heaven. This is a timely message, folks. There are so many today competing for your heart in terms of adjusting your ideology. We see our, our country, our community, our families, our sphere of influence, our friend groups begin to be kind of split out. And so the Republicans want you to vote for their guy or just hate the other person. Democrats want you to vote for their person or just hate the other person. And so they're pulling on your heart and calling you to identify with this. And as a Christian... You should be engaged in the political process, but it should not be who you are. It wants your heart. It wants your heart. But you cannot give it. We come into this, and there's this picture of God's sovereignty in his address to these folks. He says, you are elect exile." And so they recognize in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their turmoil, in the midst of the strife interpersonally and, and, and in their neighborhoods, they're recognizing that these things, they are exactly where they're supposed to be when they are supposed to be there. And so there is no sense in them that, that they've made some colossal error, some mistake that has resulted in, in misgiving, that has resulted in confusion or uncomfortableness in their community. They are exactly where they're supposed to be, exactly when they're supposed to be there. In essence, it's as if God is also, by extension, saying to you, the difficulty, the suffering, the uncomfortableness you're going through in life is purposed. It is for your good and God's glory. And that's a difficult message for us to receive because we want to be people who kind of make and fashion our lives to be what is most comfortable, what is most enjoyable, and what most readily helps time to pass with the least amount of difficulty. Amen? What we see, he writes to them, this bedraggled group of sojourners, and he says, you are where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. He describes in, in terms of a more nuanced identity in verse 9 of chapter 2. Speaking to this people from this, this disparate group of five cities, he says, You are a chosen race, 
He comes to these people regardless of creed, regardless of background, of country of origin, and he's able to describe them summarily as being one people. He said, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And then moving into this idea of whose we are, he says, you are a people for his own possession. This is such a timely word for us to hear. That our identity is not just captivated in who we want to be in our profession. We are engineers, we are dentists, we are lawyers, God save us. We are homemakers, we are friends, we are grandmothers, we are neighbors, we are unemployed. We are homeless. But this is not who we are. This is not who we are. Our identity is not primarily shaped in the decisions we make in life, but is found in whose we are. Do you see the distinction? We have to recognize whose we are. But over the course of your life, some of you have made phenomenally stupid decisions. Is this true? Some people laughing back there, they're like, I made a stupid decision this morning. I knew I should have gone to the Methodist church. And so what we find in this is there's this idea kind of rolling in us when we begin to find our identity in Christ. There is this sinful reminder that rolls back through. And so you see yourself making righteous and good decisions. You see yourself walking in faith. You see yourself walking in light of who Christ has said you are and not who the world says you are. And then what happens? You get a friend, you get a family member, you get a memory that plays like an old tape in your mind. It sees you drunk. It sees you sleeping around. It sees you mired in pornography. It sees you stealing money. It sees a wayward glance. It sees you captivated in every sin in which you used to love. Paul, writing about our sinful nature in chapter 2 of Ephesians, said that we were dead, and in our deadness, we reveled in it. Imagine a pig that finds a good mud hole and just rolls and rolls and rolls and never gets tired of it. This was us in our sinfulness. Now let me say this morning, some of you were good people in your sinfulness. You were the people that, that those in the community looked and, and, and said, uh, man, I wish I could be like, like Jim Bob. I wish I could be, like, we don't have any Jim Bobs here and so I feel real comfortable with that name designation, okay? I wish I could be like him. I wish I could be like his wife. People came over to your house. People trusted the candy you gave out at Halloween. People wanted to be at your house on the 4th of July. People trusted you with their kids, with their money, with their possessions. They sought you for wisdom, and you were completely dead. There was no spiritual vibrancy in you. There was nothing alive in you. Why? Because you were resting on your goodness instead of God's perfection met out, delivered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus. And your temptation is to find your identity back in your goodness instead of the perfection of Jesus. And that's enticing. That is alluring. And everybody around you would say that those are good, appropriate, and wonderful things. And so while those around you might might find themselves being pulled back into egregious sin that all of us would label as awful, disgusting, and terrible, they would summarily look at yours and say, this is good, walk into that. You're struggling with Jesus, just be a good person for a little while. You're struggling walking in your faith, it's okay. Just be polite, just be kind, just be timely. Don't owe anybody money, don't be hard on anybody around you. Can I tell you that whether your sin was egregious or whether it was universally recognized as being good, it doesn't matter. 
Don't fall back into the pattern of what you used to be because he's called you to be something decidedly different. Peter addressing this in verse 14 of chapter 1. Look at what he says to us. Everybody look down. He says, as obedient children. As obedient children. He surmises that we are obedient. He doesn't say, look, stop being disobedient. He calls you. He recognizes because the gospel has transformed you that you already should be this. As obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions. Look what he says. It is of our former ignorance. Everybody say, we were stupid. You in the back, you didn't say it. I need to hear it one more time. Everybody say, we were stupid. It's our former ignorance. Let's just call it what it is, okay? And so he's telling us, don't walk in your former ignorance. You are ignorant of the things of God or you are largely disinterested. And he says, do not let this be who you are now. In chapter four and verse three, he reminds them once more. He says, the time is past And time is past, suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawlessness and idolatry. He says, this is what people, this is how they respond to you, verse 4 of chapter 4. They see you don't engage in that. They see you resist that, keep from doing those things, and they are surprised. When people hear your testimony and say, you know, I've always been a good person, but what I recognize is that I was dead in my goodness. And I don't do that anymore. I don't prop up this false image of myself that is impossible to maintain. I don't prop up perfection of myself because I can't do that. What I do is I hide behind the cross of Jesus and I exalt in him and his sufferings. You're a drunk, you can out keg stand anybody. 12 shots in, everybody's dropping out and you're still knocking them back. You were cheating because you were for sure knocking water back instead of vodka. But nobody knew that. And so when people, you go out and people see you and and then they recognize, who are you? I don't recognize this person anymore. Why aren't you engaging in this pattern of behavior anymore? You don't say it's because I quit drinking. You exalt in Jesus. Our temptation is to find the path of least resistance to go out and say, I just don't do that anymore. It's not good for my health. I'm training for a 5K. I'm doing this. I gave that up for Lent five years ago and just haven't picked it up again. We choose opportunities in terms of describing who we used to be to describe who we are now in the person of Jesus, not just a modified or changed behavior pattern. Do you understand? Our former way of existence is a picture of deadness. Our current state of being alive in Christ is a picture of the transformational power of the gospel present evident in you. You can be a billboard for the gospel if you won't be so readily ashamed of your past that you have to cast it in a more positive light. Cast Jesus in a positive light. Allow his light to wash over you. And in so doing, boldly proclaim the gospel and its transformative work in your life. Amen? Don't be who you used to be. Be who you are now. Back in chapter 1, Peter really just addresses this so well in terms of who we are and whose we are. He says that we are these elect exiles. We live in these various cities. Why? It is according to the Trinity at work. It is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knew it. He saw it coming. Salvation is not an accident. It is the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is working. You are recognized positionally as being holy in salvation. God comes to you, Joel, in your goodness, and he smites you, and he makes you holy. 
And then over the course of your life, he's progressively making you holy, causing you to have disdain, hatred towards sin in your life. And what is recognized as sin in your life is also changing because your heart is being changed and reformed and made to beat for Jesus and Jesus alone. It's the foreknowledge of the Father. It's the sanctification of the Spirit. Look what it says here. It is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. It is his blood that makes us holy and righteous before God. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and it is to live lives directed at being obedient to God. Even in our description back in chapter 2, verse 9, of kind of who we are, we recognize that we are possessed, we are owned by him. But this question kind of rolls in, how was this affected? How did these things come to be? And I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many people, when you describe and you begin to talk to them about the gospel, they say, okay, so what you're telling me is I need to quit cheating on my wife and then I can come to Jesus, or I need to quit drinking and then I can come to Jesus. And, and so whatever it is, from that to I just need to quit depending on my goodness. Are you telling me I need to be lazy? Are you telling me I need, we need to be more invested and more involved in sin? And so all these things, because everything else in life is a process, is it not? Everything in life is a process. You go to the DMV, what's the process? Fill out the form and wait for all eternity. You go anywhere else, there is a process captivated to all these things. So we come into salvation, we want a nice, neat, orderly process. Where do I start? Where does it fit? What we recognize in this is the work of salvation began for before we ever entered the picture and the work of salvation produced in our hearts is us being thoroughly dependent upon the work of Jesus. It's not Jesus plus your good works. It's not Jesus plus your amazing backstory. It's not Jesus plus all your talents. It's not Jesus plus your hot smoking wife. It's not Jesus plus any of these things. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. He writes in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the Father God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this. According to his great mercy, he has caused, he has made, he has produced us to be born again. To what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are not mentioned. It's the sacrifice of Jesus that is producing life in us. It's the fact that God raised him from the dead that allows us to stand, draw breath, and boldly proclaim his sacrifice, not matched with our goodness. It was accomplished by the sacrifice of Jesus. It's accomplished because not just that we've been been buried in the likeness of Christ's death and raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6. It's not because of these things. It's all because of Jesus, his sacrifice. And what we find therein is that we're being built upon Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, this is who he is. He is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. It's amazing. This is what salvation is. It's to see Jesus in his sacrifice and we approach it and we appraise it as one of two things. Chosen and precious and we come into salvation or vile and worthless and we cast him off. We choose to build on ourselves, our talents, our abilities, our family, our likability. And all those things will be burned up. Or we choose to build on the sacrifice of Jesus. 
his goodness, his perfection. So we come to him, the living stone, and we recognize he's been rejected by men. He was cast off by men. But as God appraised him, he is chosen and precious. And look what God does to us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. God is building us up. He is making something out of us. But even in understanding our identity and how he's accomplishing these things, he is calling us to work. He says, I'm building you up. I'm making a, a, a holy temple in some sense out of you. For what purpose? He says, it is to offer spiritual sacrifices. In essence, everything we have, every fiber of personality, all of our money, everything we are, have, and possess, and some of those things people suspect about us, all those things are for Jesus and to be used by Jesus. Pastor Matt, are you serious? Are you really telling me, are you really suggesting to me that everything I have in life God wants? No, I'm not serious about that. What I'm telling you is everything you have in life God owns. Do you see the difference? He doesn't want it. He's already got it. Quit fooling yourself trying to hold it back trying to hold back your investment in church, trying to hold back your investment in the gospel, trying to hold back your investment in your kids, saying, but what if I fail? What if I raise them the wrong way? Quit doing these things. Fully entrust yourself to God, and he will lead you where he desires for you to go. He wants you to offer everything you have to him. He wants to use every fiber of your being, everything you've got, all your assets and liabilities, your backstory, your current story, and your future for his glory. It could be. It could be that what God wants to use you for is he wants to use the failures of your life to keep somebody else from making the same mistake. Man, I grew up as a younger brother. I have a brother who's six years older than me who made some supremely stupid decisions. And I can remember as a kid being in my room and hearing my brother holler from the whippings he was getting down the hall. And I never reveled in that, but I always wanted to know why. Because there were violations that got stern talking tos, there were violations that got groundings, and there were violations that got spankings. And when a teenager is getting a whooping, you know he's done something wrong. And so I put my ear to the door and be like, oh man, I didn't even know that wasn't a lie. What? You did what now? With who? And how what? Some of your lives are like that. Some of your lives, you guys have made such horrible messes of your lives, and your backstory is, is just terrible. Nobody's excusing that. It's not something you'd be proud of. It's not like we walk in on Sunday mornings and you have a t-shirt that reads out all your sins, and you're like, I don't want to sit by you. I don't want to sit by you. Who's the person that suffers from goodness and giving money away too much? Where are you? But recognize that some of our sins in life, and we can go to people and say, brother, can I tell you that I struggled with, with pornography addiction? Can I tell you I was an alcoholic? Can I tell you that my marriage was awful? It was on the rocks. My wife was leaving me justifiably because I was such an idiot. I did not love her well. I did not love our kids well. Can I share that, not out of some sense of pride or, 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 or boldness, but can I share that in the sense of what God is making me? 
the edifice that God is making you into may be such the fact that the failures in your life can point other people away from making those same things. But I can just tell you this. As long as you pretend to be perfect and have everything together and the, that pretend that the backstory of your life did not exist, you're never going to be helpful or impactful for the people around you. You're lying to yourself, you're lying to them, and you're being disobedient to Jesus. Got to be people where it's okay not to be perfect in this place. People where it's okay that we were broken. And it's okay that for some of us, we are still broken, more broken than others. And we do that in community with one another. And God is so beautifully glorified in our midst. But it calls for vulnerability. We recognize the inward call of what we're here to do is to be holy and Verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This isn't a picture of us doing things right, but it's time spent with Jesus. Time spent with Jesus, the role of the Holy Spirit in our life producing sanctification. He is making us holy. He is making us right. He is stripping away sin from us in our lives. Some of us more than others. Some of us more painfully than others. But our inward hearts are being transformed as our gaze is transfixed upon Jesus. Recognize within the church, he calls us to one of the most difficult things. One of the most difficult things, I think, within the life of the church is in in doing life with people or whatever catchy phrase you want to slap on that, being community with people, being real with people. It's just not hating the people around you, right? It's being kind to them. It's being found to be in unity with them. Peter dressed it this way. In chapter 1 and verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, look at this, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I can just tell you really easily, you cannot love the people in this church, you cannot love the people of Jesus without involving and investing yourself in their lives. And allowing them to do likewise. And some of us are annoying. Some of us are more annoying than others. And we likely don't know it. And we're going to irritate the snot out of you. You got rough edges. We're going to bump them all off. Bumping up against you. Because we're hard to get along with. Have you ever gone on holiday with people? Or you call it vacation. Have you ever gone on vacation with people that are just hard to be around? You're like, man, your morning breath is significant. And you guys are like five tenths away. Like, they call it snoring, friend. They don't call it just... (laughs) You need to see an ear, nose, and throat guy two counties away because I don't even want to be there for your sleep study. It's hard to do church with people. It's hard to be caught up and captivated in this pursuit with others. How to love one another. He comes back to it in chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, all of you, even you bald guy in the back, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Because this is what you are called to do. Be involved and invested in people's lives. In that thin-skinned nature that you're so tempted to employ in the church. I'm sorry, folks. That's just not going to work. So how do we do it? Lots of prayer. Lots of forgiveness. You extend the grace to others that you hope they extend to yourself. And some of the most annoying of you in here 
I can point, I got, man, I got fingers pointed back to myself. I know that. But we got to get over ourselves. We just absolutely have to. Come to me, you come to those around, you say, did you hear what she said? Did you hear what he said? Did you see what they posted on Facebook? Did you see the sloppy way they take pictures on Instagram? Girl, they don't even know. If you, if you post one more picture of Snapchat, I'm just going to slap, slap you. <laughs> Nobody needs to see that tongue coming out. Come on now. That's another sermon series. We're going to have that in February. Social faux pas. <clears throat> There's a test to get in, though. He says we need to display unity. He says we need to love one another. Chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, Above all these things, keep on loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. If we be focused more on how to love one another, all the different junk that we enter, enter into, all the ways that people around us disappoint us would pass away, would phase away. We wouldn't even begin to recognize them. Chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, You have been gifted certain things in salvation. Use these not to serve yourself, but to serve those around you. And so we recognize there is a within the church manifestation. But can I tell you that First Peter also gives us this beautiful picture of how we are supposed to be to the outside world. And it's not holding signs of condemnation. It's not walking slowly past your neighbor's house and be like, they'd be sleeping together. They'd be not paying their taxes. They're in the midst of a terrible relationship. It's not castigating people. It's not offering our judgment towards those people around us. It is boldly displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to be beautiful and captivating with a gospel? Ask Jesus to make this thing true for you in your life. Not just something you intellectually believe, but something that is manifested, permeated every every fiber of who you are, and it is readily displayed, seen by those around you. In chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter wrote it this way. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when people go and say things about you, John, that aren't true, or you, Shane, that aren't true, or you, Tom, that aren't, okay, Tom, that are true, but you wish they weren't, when, when people say these things about you, let them be wrong. And for so long, the things people have said against the church have been nothing but right. We're a group of judgmental hypocrites. This is kind of what people said about the church. You guys are judgmental hypocrites. And that hurts, that stings. And what do we want to say? We want to turn around and say, but yeah, but at least we're not doing the junk you guys are doing. You know what that sounds like? It's judgmental. You're verifying at least one half of the things they say. Can't do that. If we expect perfection in the church, we're creating hypocrites. If we expect perfection in the church, we, we, we create an environment where we say it's not okay to fail. And if you fail, we remove you. If you fail, we judge you. If you fail, we kick you out as quickly as possible. All we're showing people is that the gospel is great for redemption at the beginning, but really in the middle, it's more of an embarrassment to us to see the failure of our people. We're asking people to engage in hypocrisy. It's hard to watch the people around you fail. What's so much harder is to find out that somebody has been failing for a decade, failing for 60 years, but they never found the freedom to tell those around them what they were struggling with. I want to be an open, 
want to be a loving, want to be a kind people who desire to see redemption continue its work in our hearts even after we come to know Jesus. And so he says they need to see your good deeds. And in seeing our good deeds, the hope is that as we demonstrate the gospel, as we have opportunity to communicate the gospel, that they would see our good deeds and that they would be transformative in the lives of the unbeliever and that they would boldly love Jesus. Peter writes it this way. They would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation so that when Jesus shows up, that they would be counted among the redeemed. Is your life that way? I can be honest, I can think of at least a half a dozen different times this week where my life was clearly not that way. But in my defense, she cut me off and she just incited rage in traffic. I'm sorry, Claudette. (laughs) And we all fail. But what we see in this is that over the course of our lives, even in our failure, we have opportunity to point to the redemptive work of Jesus in our lives. What Peter does, and we're not going to get into this, but starting in chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 7, he shows how gospel living affects everything. It starts with the idea of government. What a timely word for us. How the Christian responds to government. It's been said that this isn't the election where anybody votes for somebody they like, but votes against somebody they don't. This is an amazing opportunity for you, Christian, to lean in, regardless of who's elected in December or in, in, in November and takes office next year. Regardless of who this person is, whether you like them, advocate for them, and have 50 bumper stickers off the back of your car to show this is what the gospel says about me and my response to those God puts in power. The king's heart. The king's heart is able to be adjusted and moved and motivated by God. That's our prayer. He talks about government. He talks about uh, the workplace in terms of slaves to masters. And then he talks about wives to husbands, a wife with an unbelieving husband and a husband to his wife. Do you know that the gospel should permeate not just what you look like on Sundays, but it should permeate what you look like every day. No matter who you come into contact with, the gospel has bearing for what that should look like. You're living as an elect exile, one with a living hope beating in your heart. And as such, you're able to engage in difficult situations and glorify God even in the midst of it. So the question might be, how in the world are we supposed to accomplish this? This seems like a, like a difficult task. How are we supposed to live in suffering? How are we supposed to live in difficulties? How are we supposed to live uh, with, with my family? How am I supposed to exalt the gospel in the midst of this? We recognize that it is not in our own efforts, but always focused on, centered on the redemptive work of Jesus and the fact that our salvation is secure It is here, it is now, but it is also in the distance, in the future, and being held safe and kept safe for us. Peter writing to motivate this group of the draggled folks said in chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5 that you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. We accomplish this in some sense by focusing on God, his goodness to us and the salvation that he does not allow us to sully and to mess up and to jack up. I broke a lot of stuff as a kid. I did. Like if you talk to my mom, she would say, you're the reason we don't have nice things. 
I can remember one, one time in particular, I never played the piano, but I always thought it was cool. We had one house growing up that had a piano. This is how I played it. That one time, I never got a chance to play it again. But I can remember my mom, when I was younger, had nice things that were high up. All this meant to me was it was more difficult to get the nice thing, to hold the nice thing. And when it fell, there's no recovering the nice thing. And so I grew up with this understanding. And when you bring that type of understanding into salvation, and you begin to think that, man, I could totally jack this up that I could mess this up, that I could destroy this, that I could be this ruiner of my own faith. What we read here is that God is safe keeping it. Look what he says. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. God is safe keeping your salvation. He is safe keeping it. He is safeguarding it. It's not this this thing that you're able to lose because it's not this thing that you are ever able to earn in the first place. He's safekeeping. We accomplish these things God is calling us to also in some sense by focusing on his word. Look at our posture in chapter two and verse two. He says, like newborn infants, this is us in our relationship to his word. We are to long for pure spiritual milk that by it we may grow up into salvation. Our response as Christians is to find ourselves fully invested in his word, not a people who on Sunday morning say, where did I put this thing? Where did I put this thing? I have no idea where it is. But a people who recognize that the course and trajectory of our lives is best found in our understanding of his word, be it on your phone, iPad, or in the covers of a delightful calfskin Bible. What we find is that he's calling us to desire his word. What we find is he's calling us to focus on his sacrifice, not ours. Chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We see this wonderfully gracious picture of the gospel. It says, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God in his goodness would beckon you come. God in his goodness would beckon you come from your sin, come from your waywardness, come from your apathy. God, in his goodness, longs and desires to lift you up from the pit of despair. What we begin to see in chapter 5 and verse 10 is this wonderful promise. He says, and after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. The great news of the gospel. It's not that God saves you and leaves you to wander. The great news of the gospel is that God saves you in your lostness and in your despair. And he guides you and safe keeps you over the course of your life to his glory. 
And the great question of 1 Peter is that when he makes it into chapter 5 and verse 12, he is asking us, are we ready to stand firm in the grace contained therein? We know who we are. We know who we are on the basis of whose we are. And knowing that thing, and recognizing this place, Greenville, Texas, Hunt County, this is not our home. This is the place we reside. We dwell here as resident aliens. But our true home and allegiance rests with God in heaven. We are homesick for a place we know not of. Are we ready to stand in the grace of that knowledge? Are we ready? Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we thank you that we are able to stand on the basis of the cross of Christ, that we recognize that Jesus is worthy of all honor and praise, that he is worthy of our allegiance, that on the basis of his sacrifice, not our goodness, are we able to stand. On the basis of his goodness and not our own, are we able to be reckoned as righteous before you. Father, we pray that you would move in our hearts and our minds. God, I pray for those who have really just made a mess of their lives, that you would be moving to restore them, Cause them to walk in light of who they are, not who they were or who they have now become. The unchangeable reality of their salvation. God, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you, whether they're disbelieving or seeking to be good on their own, that in the power of your spirit that you would draw them. That you would show them the compassion of the cross of Christ. Your justice poured out, that their sins have been paid for. And then in that graciousness that you would bid them come. And God, I pray that for the rest of us, that you would just be sending your spirit to work, to apply your word to our hearts, that you would allow us to stand in this grace. You would allow us to communicate and demonstrate the gospel and to do so well. To abide in the living hope that you have given us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.